Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. With me today is Awais Atab. Awais is a psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. He writes the Substack newsletter, Psychiatry at the Margins, which explores critical, philosophical, and scientific debates in psychiatric practices and the sci sciences. Always welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I really enjoy your Substack, Psychiatry at the Margins. I think it does a great job of talking about what psychiatrists are talking about, which is not always the same as what people in the broader mental health space are talking about. Um, but you talk about those issues in a really sort of philosophically informed way that I think is is very rare to come across. So I'm curious about your background. You know, how did you um, basically end up in psychiatry? And do you have any kind of philosophical training? Or did you just pick that up along the way? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that that what I talk about in the perspective I, uh, I express is kind of mainstream in the psychiatric community. But I think psychiatrists who are philosophically informed and, and who are engaged in these kinds of debate, the Substack does reflect that. So I, th- I think it reflects a certain uh, subset of psychiatrists who are who are interested in in these scientific and philosophical issues. I don't have a formal uh, philosophy training, but I've had a longstanding interest in philosophy that that goes back to my my teenage years. I'm from Pakistan originally. That's where I was born and grew up and I did my medical school. And even before I started medical school, I was really interested in philosophy. And I think in another life, I might have pursued that option professionally, but it it wasn't really a viable career path in in, in Pakistan. So uh, so I ended up in med school. And in in med school, I realized pretty quickly that my interests and and my temperament kind of... sort of like made psychiatry a suitable option for me. And I didn't really find uh, the rest of medicine that intellectually stimulating or interesting. Um, so uh, from relatively early in med school, I I, I kind of knew that uh, that I wanted to be a psychiatrist and psychiatry was was the path for me. Um, and during med school, I, I, I kept up with, with reading about philosophy and sort of like, you know, reading about uh, various kinds of, you know, philosophical issues and debates that concern medicine, psychology, psychiatry, etc. So so I, I kept up with that. And uh, that only increased once I started my uh, psychiatry training and psychiatry residency. And I started reading more. And I, I discovered this vault of uh, sort of like literature um, that has developed over the past uh, three decades, you know, um, in, in the academic field of philosophy of psychiatry. Um, so I sort of like, you know, I read a lot of that, sort of kind of devoured that, and slowly I started becoming an active participant myself. Right. Well, you know, the the first part of your story is is very common, I think, in psychiatry, where there are people who have interest in art or philosophy or literature, but they also want to have a practical career where they can help people or, or make money. And so many of them end up, you know, going into med school and they end up in psychiatry. And I think that makes psychiatry quite different than some of the other medical professions, just in terms of the kind of people who might even um, go in. Uh, now, what what sort of issues in a, say, a, a journal or at a conference of philosophical psychiatry would be explored that you wouldn't encounter at, say, a, a normal, you know, psychiatry conference? You know, there's a huge range of, of, of topics, but um, it, it's basically thinking more deeply about the nature of psychiatric concepts and, 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 and the different ways in which they're subject to disagreement and, and, the, and the sorts of uh, judgments that are involved. 
and and also looking at various aspects of um, psychiatric practice and uh, and the power dynamics that are involved and how those power dynamics uh, shape our our knowledge and understanding of, of psychopathology. So these are sort of like you know I'm I'm talking in, in general terms about what some of the you know the focus of philosophy of psychiatry meetings and, and conferences tends to be. So for example, like on the psychiatric concept side. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around the, the sort of like you know the idea of mental illness itself, or sort of like the idea of psychopathology. Uh, to what extent, uh, sort of like it is something that is you know natural and objective. To what extent there are value judgments involved. Uh, what sorts of value judgment uh, judgments? Uh, what are the different ways in which we try to sort of like you know. Uh, uh, draw a boundary between normality and psychopathology um, when we try to sort of like classify conditions within uh, the domain of mental illness and psychopathology what is guiding that uh, to what extent is it a socially constructed process to, to what extent sort of like these um, these classifications influence sort of like you know a person's understanding of themselves and how does that change subsequent classification efforts uh, itself. So it's sort of like the, the philosopher Ian Hacking came up with the term looping effects that has generated a very rich literature. And there are sort of like questions of, you know, the, the psychiatric diagnostic constructs are these you know, natural kinds, pragmatic kinds, social kinds, and, and sort of like, you know, what, is, what does that all mean? Um, in recent years, there has been a lot of emphasis on idea of epistemic justice, uh, which is um, which relates to knowledge and relates to power dynamics. And uh, in particular, sort of like you know, it, there are two subtypes of epistemic justice. One is testimonial, uh, uh, sort of like you know, justice or injustice, which is, pertains to how uh, how credibly we treat the testimony of patients who have been diagnosed with mental illness and what sort of biases involved there. And then uh, hermeneutic justice, which is about you know, to what extent individuals with mental illness have a say in in the processes of knowledge production uh, that that relate to psychiatry. So just sort of like you know, g- giving a, some example of the sorts of topics and, and things that that get discussed um, in, in in this side of things. And all of these are sort of criticisms of or critical of psychiatry, in the sense that psychiatry wants to say I am objective, I am scientific, right? And if it can't say it's objective and scientific, it has a hard time saying I deserve the authority. Uh, that I have, or I deserve the trust and confidence that I have. So I imagine there must be a bit of a dynamic where the people in, I don't know, I don't know if there's a term for it, but capital P psychiatry or something like that, uh, they want to preserve the authority, the power they have. uh, And so they don't necessarily want the critical people to get too loud to go too far. But at the same time, the critical people often have good points and often attract smart people like yourself. And so they also probably want to loop in some of those uh, criticisms maybe slowly into the broader psychiatry. There's certainly a dynamic. It's not a purely uh, critical endeavor. I think it really depends on, um, uh, you know, on the, on the person and sort of like, you know, how they're presenting the argument and, and what, what, you know, what they're interested in. But um, I think like there's one aspect of philosophy of psychiatry that, that is about, Thinking deeply about concepts and and trying to clarify them and and trying to understand and is understand them in the best way possible. So, for example, when I think about the nature of psychopathology or when I think about the nature of diagnostic constructs, you know, it's not necessarily um, 
a process of criticism where I'm criticizing, you know, existing ways, but rather it is a one of like clarification and trying to sort of like, you know, arrive at, you know, this is the best way to understand these these categories. Um, there are others who are sort of like, you know, who are more critical of them and sort of like, you know, might, um, you know, take a more critical stance. Um, so so it, it, it depends, sort of like, you know, but sort of like, you know, we, we see all kinds of, I think, um, kind of dynamics and motivations, you know, when, when, it, when it comes to philosophy of psychiatry. Got it. And now there is the sort of critical psychiatry movement. Uh, and there's also the anti-psychiatry movement. I'm not sure actually which is older or if one evolved out of the other. How exactly are they different and how much do they overlap? Yeah, so it's um uh, it, it's difficult to sort of like, you know, give a brief answer because they're they're both really loaded terms and in really problematic terms in in, in their own ways. Um now um so I'll I'll sort of like an I'll attempt an answer, but sort of like, you know, uh but this is something that could be analyzed in like you know much much more detail. And um and, and to some extent I, I I do that in my in my writings and in my forthcoming work as well. Now um anti-psychiatry uh, is older, um, relatively speaking. And um in general, it refers to uh, a, a set of psychi- psychiatric critiques that emerged in the in the 60s and 70s. Um and, and this is the time where we see some of the seminal texts of psychiatric criticism kind of sort of like, you know, they get written and published. So there is Thomas Zaz, The Myth of Mental Illness. There is Michel Foucault, His History of Psychiatry. There's Irving Goffman's work on, on asylums. Um, there's R.D. Lane in the UK with his divided self and then subsequent subsequent writings. Um, so, the, and this is also the time where there's a lot of um, sociopolitical kind of upheaval taking place in the civil rights movement. There's sort of like, you know, much more awareness and activism around uh, LGBTQ issues. So, uh, so we see sort of like this general societal awareness around various sorts of um you know, forms of control and authority and coercion and then psychiatry and sort of like, you know, to, to some extent, the rest of the medical system uh, become becomes a target of that too. Um, and so this is sort of like, you know, this is the conventional narrative about anti-psychiatry that, you know, this is sort of like what was going on and that we had these intellectuals and some of them psychiatrists themselves, like Zaz and R.D. Ling, who were fiercely criticizing the foundations of the discipline and sort of like challenging conventional under- understanding and sort of like there were all these broader sociopolitical links, uh, links as well. Uh, but the story starts like you know starts getting complicated uh, because you know some of these seminal figures they resisted the label of, of anti-psychiatry and understood it differently. So from like Thomas Zaz never accepted or saw himself as an anti-psychiatrist. R.D. Lane kind of distanced himself from 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 that label as well. And sort of like you know um, it gets more complicated because the the term has acquired really kind of negative and dismissive connotations now, where to call someone that, you know, you are an anti-psychiatrist or you're, what you're seeing is anti-psychiatry has this kind of hostile edge to it, where it's like, I'm, I'm dismissing what you're saying. I'm sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm saying it's not even worth taking seriously because you're so biased or prejudiced against psychiatry. So it has, it, it, it has acquired connotations that are similar to, let's say, if you call someone anti-vaxxer or anti-vaccine, you know, sort of like, you know, in certain circle, circles, anti-psychiatry has that kind of connotations now. So, uh, so it becomes really challenging, sort of like, you know, that there's, 
you know, there's this historical aspect to it. There's this philosophical aspect to it. But then there's also sort of like, you know, it's mixed in mixed in with these really negative connotations, um, which makes this kind of tricky to navigate. And um, so I, I usually, when I usually use the term anti-psychiatry, um, I try to restrict it to that historical kind of setting where I'm talking about, you know, a particular era. Um, but many, many, the, uh, many people these days use the term as a way of referring to this sort of prejudiced on uh, sort of like um, uh, unnecessarily hostile way of talking about psychiatry. Uh, so in, in that context, sort of like, you know, so uh, critical psychiatry um, kind of emerged as, as a relatively more kind of academic and respectable sort of version of psychiatric critique. Um, but it's also a very loose term and um, sort of like, you know, different people use it in, in many different ways. Um, it's there definitely, if, I, I think it's important to uh, sort of like, you know, have some clarity on how we use that term. Um, I think some, many people tend to use the term critical psychiatry as an umbrella term for basically all, all variety of psychiatric critiques, uh, you know, so any, any sort of like psychiatric critique, they, it gets called critical psychiatry. Um, but if you look at people who identify as critical psychiatrists, who say that, you know, I am a critical psychiatrist or they identify that way. Um, it's basically, it, it originates from a group based in the UK called the Critical Psychiatry Network, uh, with, you know, sort of like, you know, some prominent members being Joanna Moncrief, um, and, and Pat Brecken, um, and sort of like, you know, and, and some, some others, uh, sort of like Sami Panini. Um, and so, uh, sort of like the ideas that, uh, that they champion and they express, uh, there is a strong continuation with the ideas of the classic anti-psychiatry folks like Zaz, Foucault, um, sort of like, you know, R.D. Ling, et, et, et cetera. So, so if you look at people who identify as being critical psychiatrists, there's an intellectual and philosophical continuity between those two movements. Um, and so also important to, I think, recognize that there are many people who are engaged in, in the task of psychiatric criticism and, and psychiatric critique who don't identify as being critical psychiatrists or who don't really work within that umbrella of critical psychiatry, but they're still doing really good uh, sort of like, you know, psychiatric critical work. Um, and so, so one of the things I, I, I led a series for Psychiatric Times called Conversations in Critical Psychiatry, in which I spoke with many different people who were engaged in the task of criticizing, criticizing psychiatry, you know, both from the inside and outside. And one of my sort of like goals was to kind of problematize the notion of critical psychiatry itself by showing the, the diversity of ways in which this criticism takes place. That's such a good idea. I mean, and it's true because I think, I mean, for, first of all, within normal psychiatry, there's so much diversity in terms of what people believe. Um, I often find talking to a psychiatrist as well, there's a quite a big generational difference based on what experiences people grew up with. Were they in medical school during deinstitutionalization, right, when that was starting? Or was it, uh, you know, when uh, antidepressant usage was surging? I mean, people have, people have all kinds of things that inform their view. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, my my sense from as an outsider of the sort of critical movement uh is that there are people who are offering these very philosophical kinds of critiques there are people who are offering more political uh kinds of critiques um but over i mean overall it's it's premised i think on the idea that something in psychiatry is uh maybe broken is too strong a word but um, maybe the better way to say it is like other, you know, quote unquote, critical theories, psychiatry is not purely objective, 
that the values, the political conditions, uh, the identities of the people within it are very informative of what ends up coming out of it. And so that then prompts like an inquiry into not only what is being done, but who is doing it um, and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I mean, anti, anti-psychiatry, I agree with you, has this negative connotation, which it's very interesting that many of the original anti-psychiatrists themselves did not want to be called that. My perception is part of that reason is, is maybe because the umbrella is sort of epistemically too big. I mean, when you look at people in the anti-psychiatry community, you'll find uh, people who are doing maybe work similar to yourself or somebody like uh, Robert Whitaker, who we'll talk about in a second, who is kind of providing like an trying to do like an evidence-based takedown of psychiatry. But then there's also people under that umbrella who, for example, are part of, say, like hearing voices communities, uh, or there's the neurodiversity movement. I mean, people who are sort of saying there is no, like mental illness is not real. It's all socially constructed. And this is just simply another uh, way of life. So yeah, I see what you mean about it being quite a, a broad uh, community. And I, I, I imagine that a lot of the differences maybe within our um, I mean, are, are those kinds of differences dis- discussed and debated within the community, or is it more them versus people on the outside? I, I think sort of like in, in general, I think most people tend to have this sort of monolithic idea of psychiatry as well as kind of, you know, psychiatry critique, whether it's anti-psychiatry or critical psychiatry. But I think, you know, people don't appreciate sort of like, you know, um, how significant the differences among different types of critics are. Um and one thing I want to mention is that I think any healthy science and, and any sort of like, you know, healthy um, kind of sort of like academic discipline is going to have that element of self-criticism and self-evaluation. Because, you know, this is how science progresses. This is how sort of like, you know, our understanding of anything pro- progresses. So, you know, um, uh, so, we, you know, we would expect that sort of like, you know, if psychiatry um, sort of like, you know, um, Sort of like were sort of like a good good scientific discipline that there would be people within it actively examining sort of like you know theoretical assumptions and actively examining foundations of the discipline and criticizing and offering alternatives. So and that has always been the case. You know, it's like there there have been psychiatrists who have always been engaged in that task. And just as sort of like you know there are people in other disciplines. You know, there are people in physics challenging fundamental assumptions in, in physics. There are people in biology doing that. There are people in other other discipline, medical disciplines who, who are doing that. Um, and I sort of I think, you know, when we when we talk about uh psychiatry versus critical psychiatry or anti-psychiatry or psychiatry critique, we tend to sort of like ignore that, you know, like like this is a normal scientific process, or like you know, like you know, this this we would expect, sort of like you know, any scientific or medical discipline to have that element of self critique in it. And I think uh, so. So so that's one one aspect of it. And then, you know, like some people are um, the the motivations and methods of criticisms are very different. You know, like some people are interested in sort of like, you know, scientific standards and sort of like, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, our evidence, sort of like rigorous standards of research. And and they are criticizing psychiatry, sort of like, you know, because they uh, sort of like, you know, they want psychiatry to live up to those sort of like, you know, scientific standards. And there are others who sort of like want, who don't think that sort of like, you know, psychiatry is or can be a science and they want psychiatry to give up on the scientific standards and you know adopt something you know more humanistic or art-based or or, or etc and then there are others who sort of like you know who 
are engaged in a form of kind of mental illness denialism and you know they think this is just kind of you know uh, social deviance or ordinary suffering and that is just we're kind of unnecessarily using a medical lens so uh, uh you know and then sort of like there are even other other people who are engaged in more uh conspiracy style kind of thinking and and their criticisms are sort of like you know kind of um uh, you know, much more extreme, uh, and you know, so it's 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 a sort of like it's a very wide heterogeneous kind of group, and it's really difficult to talk about sort of like you know, like psychiatry critics of psychiatry as if they were just like one entity with you know with one set of motivations. Yeah, you know, uh, it it reminds me actually a lot of the like the American conservative movement uh, in the sense that once you once you have a movement that is based around dislike or trying to criticize something, then you have everybody gets together who hates that thing. And they all might hate it for different reasons, but as long as they kind of all agree, you know, that this is the problem. Um, well, you know, one very prominent member of the uh, anti-critical, I'm not sure, but uh, psychiatry community is Robert Whitaker, who is a, a journalist and he, I think he runs the website Mad in America. I've been reading Mad in America for a very long time including his work. I think he has a lot of interesting stuff to say. However, I think that sometimes they go overboard. And, you know, you had this interesting exchange with him, which you've also written about on your Substack. stack. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but basically, uh, to sum it up quickly, uh, an article in uh, March was published in JAMA Psychiatry called Success Rates in Psychiatry which basically uh, said that psychiatric interventions are rarely reported in peer-reviewed journals, which makes it difficult to evaluate whether psychiatric treatment outcomes have improved over time or not. And the article went on to explain why, you know, it would be a good idea to start uniformly, if possible, reporting the outcomes. And then in Mad in America, they reported on the JMS Psychiatry article uh, with the headline, No Evidence That Psychiatric Treatments Produce Successful Outcomes. And the article basically went on to say that we don't have any evidence of psychiatry being better today than in the 1800s. So you wrote a very short article basically responding to their review where you say that they're sort of mischaracterizing the initial study. Um, yeah, it's true that there's been a, a strong lack of data reported. Just based on the lack of that data, that does not you know, prove there's been no improvement in psychiatry in over 200 years. And then Robert Whitaker wrote a very long blog uh, response to your piece where he dove into his own personal story. He criticized your review of their review. Uh, and then he made sort of an argument against progress in psychiatry. And he actually sort of stood you up as being sort of symbolic uh, or of, of trying to convey this notion of progress, of everything sort of getting a little bit better. We made mistakes, but, you know, is that a good sort of summary of the debate? Is there anything key I'm, I'm missing there? I think that gets the, the gist of it. But the article, um, you know, in, in JAMA Psychiatry, which was talking about um, outcomes, it was talking about outcomes of a particular sort. We have been measuring outcomes. So like in any time we do a randomized control trial of an intervention, we know sort of like, you know, how that intervention does in comparison to placebo. But like, you know, so we can tell that, you know, this many, this many people improved or, you know, remitted sort of like with placebo, this many people improved, but, uh, you know, with, with that intervention, etc. So we have that sort of, those, that sort of outcome data. And then we have different kinds of like, you know, uh, observational data as well, where people have taken sort of like, you know, large data sets, and they have sort of like, you know, looked at, you know, changes and sort of like, you know, over time. The article was kind of talking about our overall ability 
to improve the health of population, for example, or our overall ability to sort of like, you know, produce desirable outcomes. So not just with one intervention, but, you know, so for example, uh, you know, three decades ago, we had far fewer antidepressants. Now we have a lot more medications with many different types of mechanisms. So, you know, if we have the same, let's say, if we had comparable groups of people, are we getting with the sort of like, you know, combined use of those medications, sort of like, you know, better outcomes, sort of like, you know, than we would have, for example, in, in a similar group of people. So it's talking about a particular kind of sort of like, you know, outcome data and again, not just sort of like, you know, out, outcome data in, in general, which we sort of like, you know, have, have, have plenty, uh, plenty of those. So one, I think, and I think that part wasn't, I think, fully explained or, or, or characterized. Another thing was that, uh, it's it wasn't just about this that particular quote itself, but um, I I have been reading Madden America for many years as well, and I I I, I sometimes say that I kind of have a love hate relationship with it. I think I think it served a u- really important and useful purpose because it is it is one of the main uh, platforms where critical discussions around psychiatry take place. So you know so we you know uh, it serves an important function, but I think. What tends to annoy me at times is that uh, it's basically only interested in interested in a negative coverage of psychiatry, and so you know, and, and oftentimes sort of like you know, um, it reports the sort of like you know results of studies and papers in a sort of like a very negative kind of way. So it gives you sort of like you know, uh, one side of the picture. And if Madden America is your primary source of information about psychiatry, which, you know, for many people it seems to be, then you're getting a very lopsided impression of the current state of psychiatric knowledge. And you sort of like, you know, you're just, you're just constantly hearing that psychiatry is a failed discipline, psychiatry doesn't measure outcome, there's no evidence that it works, right? And so you're constantly sort of like getting this message without anything to balance it or without anything to sort of like do that. So when I wrote that initial post, I was just trying to show you know, like, like how different the tone and the message of the original article was, and how different its coverage was in Madden America, and and just trying to sort of like give, uh, you know, have readers reflect on that if all you're getting is that coverage and you have you don't have access to sort of like you know that the original reporting. Um, then you can imagine over time what sort of impression of psychiatry you would have. So that was that was kind of my 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 intention, and I, I think you know uh, uh, kind of triggered a nerve or sort of like touched the nerve. Uh, and I think sort of like you know Whitaker produced that uh, response. And again, sort of like you know I think uh, that response also wasn't just about my post, but also I think was about psychiatry generally. But also about, I think, sort of like you know, my previous interactions with Madden America. So I, I guess there was a, uh, a, a sort of like a loaded history behind that, behind that whole exchange. Um, but it, I think it illuminates the the kind of dynamics that go into the the online information ecosystem around psychiatry, and and why I sort of like you know feel irritated by that, and why I'm using my substack to sort of like you know try to promote a more kind of balanced form of you know criticism uh, that that I think has uh, often been lacking. Yeah, well, one of the things that Robert uses in his criticism of of your review is he keeps using the the phrase uh, failed paradigm of care. And I think that's actually a really good and maybe interesting potentially even useful way to look at the criticism they're making broadly, right? Is there 
and maybe that differentiates the anti in in some broader philosophical sense from the critical is they're basically saying this whole psychiatry thing is like a bad idea this whole idea that you would fix people's problems by giving them therapy or giving them medication or something and make them happier is just totally divorced from what makes people happy or healthy or or that sort of thing uh that's obviously a very kind of broad over simplified characterization of their position but i think that is sort of what is coming through here so my question to you as the representative for every psychiatrist uh, ever is if you had to defend against this kind of attack on psychiatry and you have to defend against the kind of evidence or statistics that whitaker is providing where he shows for example that i think over the last 30 years the number of people with mental illnesses has stayed about the same but the number of people using medications has gone up. The number of people, I think, applying for disability because of mental illness has gone up. You know, there's more 911 calls, more people are homeless and incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera, for issues relating to mental illness. You know, do you think that that, that psychiatry is a good answer to that criticism? And the criticism really is, look at how much worse mental illness seems to have gotten. What have you guys really done to uh, stop this. It's, it seems like the more psychiatry we have, the worse all these problems get. So I, I think first, um, we have to distinguish between, I think, different types of criticisms and and, and what I think different critics are, are, are kind of alleging, because um, I, I think different critics are interested in, in, in different kinds of aspects of, you know, the, the current model of care or the current paradigm of care and what they, what they, what they think are kind of viable alternatives, um, to, to, to that. Like Whitaker, for example, is like much more interested in, um, in, in being critical of the, the medication based kind of way, way of treating psychiatry. So um, the way of psychiatry, which uses medications as the central method of, of treating psychiatric distress and suffering, uh, that's his his target. And in one of the sort of like you know the thesis for for which he kind of gained more prominence in the critical circles was expressed in his um, in his book Anatomy of an Epidemic, in which he made the case that uh, psychiatric medications are making mental illness worse. So like so antidepressants are making depression worse, or antipsychotics are making schizophrenia worse, etc. So so that has been his his most controversial kind of, kind of thesis, and which he sort of like you know often alludes to, which I think others on Madden America kind of rely on as well. And but there's sort of like you know there are other uh, other critics who are interested in sort of like in, in related aspects, like you know other people are. Uh, sort of like you know interested in for example criticizing psychiatric diagnosis and they think that the use of psychiatric diagnostic systems sort of like you know has has uh, worsened sort of like you know mental health and has been sort of like a disaster uh so sort of like you know and and there are other people who are sort of like you know much more kind of interested in other aspects of psychiatric practice so one is that i think it's, it's really difficult to talk in, in sort of like you know broad terms without sort of like, you know, being specific on what it is that we're talking about. Now, a lot of people do talk about sort of mental health, uh, sort of like over time uh, in, in aggregate, sort of like, you know, the, the society or population, you, you can say. And 
I, I don't find that sort of like, you know, very convincing a persuasive argument. I think I think it has superficial appeal, which is why I think it, it attracts a lot of people. But uh, the, the issue is that that so much has has also happened over these last, you know, three to four decades. Sort of like, you know, look at sort of like the sorts of political changes that, that have happened, um, sort of like, you know, the economic policies that have been implemented. And also um, uh, political and economical po- economic policies that have shaped the practice of medicine itself. If someone were to ask me, why do I think sort of like, you know, that, that the mental health of people sort of like, you know, is so much more worse now? Sort of like I would say sort of like it's because of this like widespread you know, social, political, and economic dysfunction, you know, sort of like, you know, this this tremendous economic inequality, sort of like, you know, this sort of like, you know, lack of resources available to disadvantaged and impoverished people, the, the version of capitalism that sort of like, you know, puts people in this state of chronic stress and exhaustion and demotivation, and that deprives people from sort of like, you know, access to sources of meaning, et cetera, right? So there, there, so there are all these, you know, sort of like these really massive sociopolitical changes that have happened that have been outside the control of physicians and psychologists, sort of like, you know, so like we didn't create these social circumstances, you know, we didn't create. Um, so it's 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 obviously the case that sort of like you know the more social dysfunction there is sort of like you know the more people will be miserable and more people will be unhappy and more it's sort of like you know it'll provide a fertile ground for the development and worsening of of mental illnesses um, as well so that's one i think one big factor another sort of like thing is that there has been a much more awareness and i think acknowledgement um and destigmatization of uh, of various mental health conditions. People are sort of like, you know, much more open and willing to talk about sort of like, you know, feeling depressed, feeling anxious, experiencing obsessions and compulsions, um, even sort of like, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, things like even some forms of psychosis, bipolar disorder, people are much more open to talk about that, sort of like, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and other traumatic reactions, autism. So it's, it's, it's sort of like, it is to be expected sort of like, you know, that, um, sort of like, you know, more awareness, more recognition and destigmatization would lead to more people adopting sort of like, you know, these frameworks to express themselves and sort of understand themselves. So there's sort of like, you know, the very fact that from the like, you know, diagnosis uh, sort of like has been rising by itself doesn't indicate anything nefarious. Um, and also sort of like, you know, the last four, four decades have been the ones where we have seen this burst of developments of new medications and interventions. And when people are suffering and there there's options available to them, sort of like, you know, it is natural that they would can actually utilize those options. So I think that the, the the fact that you know we are at the population level, our mental health is wor- is worsening. I, I think it's sort of like it's is mostly because of factors outside the control of physicians. And and I think sort of like you know trying to sort of like say that oh it is what the physicians are doing that is making you know, us collectively sort of like, you know, unhealthy is, I, I, is to my mind, sort of like, you know, not a very strong argument. I think sort of like, you know, um, it, it runs into a lot of uh, problems. Now, I think there, there, there are certain areas where I think uh, psychiatry and medicine has fallen short. And I think uh, there has been this kind of implicit tendency to uh, conceptualize these really complex multi-level problems as being problems 
of the individual person or being problems of the individual brain. So, for example, the whole like chemical imbalance narrative, for example, that was popularized um, and sort of like, you know, um, and associated ideas as well from like, you know, that the rise of cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, uh, sort of like the ideas of, you know, brain dysfunction, etc. All of them were trying to identify the sources of the problem as within the individual or as belonging to the to the individual. And the interventions were directed uh, sort of like you know towards the person themselves. Um, and I think there was a relative neglect of the social, political, and broader sort of like you know factors that are also really important to mental health. So I think there was this sort of synchrony between the rise in conceptualizing mental health problems as you know problems internal to the individual and this rise of kind of neoliberal kind of capitalist kind of sort of like you know um, policies which were sort of like you know, simultaneously making living conditions sort of like you know so much more so much more worse for a lot of people but i think sort of like you know uh there has been uh, uh sort of like you know i think a general acknowledgement i think in medicine and psychiatry that you know, this social political dimension is really important. So I think so the whole discourse around social determinants of health has picked up a lot of steam and people are talking about that. The, but the issue is, uh, sort of like, is that what can physicians do about it? You know, like, you know, we we don't make the laws, we don't make the policies. You know, in, in fact, clinicians are increasingly not even in control of the the sort of like you know the the forces that are controlling the practice of medicine you know like what gets reimbursed you sort of like you know how much time do you have to spend with patients sort of like you know what sort of rules and bureaucracies you have to follow all right so clinicians can talk about it you know we can talk about social determinants all we want but unless the politicians and policymakers actually do something, you know, nothing concrete is going to change. So I think sort of like, you know, so medicine and psychiatry and psychology find themselves in this sort of like really kind of terrible dilemma where we are dealing with problems that have a very prominent sociopolitical dimension, but we are powerless to address the sociopolitical dimension. We can only address the individual dimension. And so if we don't address the individual dimension, then we are giving up on our kind of responsibility to the person in front of us, sort of like, you know, who's asking for help. And, and if we do that, if we focus on the individual, then we get charged with this sort of like, you know, the accusation that, oh, you don't care about the sociopolitical causes, you only care about the individual. So I, I think, you know, um, so this is, I think, sort of like a broader societal structural kind of thing that, you know, we need reform at multiple levels in our institutions, uh, but it's very difficult for like, you know, individuals, individual clinicians to do much about it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there to unpack, but uh, I think you're right that the level of analysis, right, in any problem is always like the most important thing, right? Are you is the problem a social problem? Is an individual problem? It's probably an interaction between the two, right? And then how do you deal with that? I have seen in recent years psychiatrists try. I mean, I think psychiatrists, fair to say, actually have always been somewhat politically involved in, in different capacities and things like that. But uh, I somewhat get worried sometimes about that because I I I do think that psychiatrists um, do take this sort of social determinants of health view, which which basically says that uh, the not all the problems, but many of the problems people have are due to these broader structural economic factors. And uh, the issue I have with that is, first of all, that is correlational, right? Not you cannot really prove it, and it's I think very hard to. So, for example, 
um, if you look at data of long-term longitudinal data of people with mental illness, right? Is it that the poverty causes the mental illness uh, or is it that mental illness over the long-term causes poverty, right? I, I think these things are very, very hard to disentangle. And uh, part of, you know, part of me gets worried because I think, I think many physicians and psychiatrists are increasingly kind of looking, eyeing public health, right? And basically saying like, I wish we were more like them. We were more sociology and less just staying in our field. But when I actually look at the, um, the effectiveness of those interventions on other kinds of outcomes, whether it's, for example, you know, school nutrition programs uh, to try and, uh, or school lunch programs to help, you know, kids with nutrition or the attacks, not the attacks, but the interventions against food deserts by public health uh, on many of these things. I just think the approach does not work. Maybe, maybe also it has similar problems as any intervention, which is just, you have small effects. It's hard to measure things, but I'm a little worried about that in the long term. But I, I do think that is sort of the, the direction many people are going and because they have, you know, ideas or concerns similar to the ones you just, yeah, described. I'm personally more optimistic about the, the, the value of social interventions and, and policy changes. And, you know, um, and I suspect that I think they, they can make a, a tremendous difference on mental health of individuals. But what I will agree on is that there is a, a lack of hard and scientific data. It's really difficult to tell that if we were to implement a certain sort of like, you know, policy, if we were to make certain social changes or political changes, that this is this sort of effect we will see on mental health or that the prevalence of, you know, a psychiatric distress by, would change by this amount or we would, you know, uh, sort of like change psychiatric outcomes by this amount. So, you know, that sort of data we don't have. And so right now what we have is a lot of kind of hypothesis and speculative kind of thinking. And I think this speaks to a certain gap in the space of psychiatric critique as well, where we have uh, sort of like, you know, clinical trials and randomized control trials of medication and psychotherapy. And, you know, they, they have, you know, limitations and problems of their own. And, and critics would kind of like, you know, analyze those clinical trials to death saying, you know, small effects and biases, blah, blah. But, you know, for the alternatives that they're suggesting, there's even less data. Sort of like, you know, like, you know, we just, you know, if you wanted to sort of like, you know, make scientifically informed policy to improve mental health, you have to rely on things that are observational, correlational, and you don't have that sort of sort of like, you know, randomized, controlled, or otherwise sort of like, you know, sort of like, you know, data that provides very robust causal understanding. So th this is kind of a challenge. And I think this is, there's a little bit of a double standard there where when it comes to uh, psychiatric and psychological interventions, we want standards to be really, really high and we want like good effect sizes. But when it comes to socioeconomic changes or policy changes, we just sort of like go into this speculative mode and just kind of, you know, anything, anything goes. And, and I, that's a problem too. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think is uh, also a bit worrying about that, and I would not say this comes from the anti-psychiatry community, quite the opposite, but uh, so, for example, there's lots of people, um, some who I've had on this podcast, who are are very in favor of reintroducing uh, institutionalization for people with severe mental illnesses on a wide scale. I think there are many, you know, good, sound reasons to do that, but at the same time, like, I actually don't think there's very good evidence of that, right? Like, that of that being an effective treatment. There are, we can make a strong argument about that as, as say, maybe a good way to 
have public order or a good way to reduce violence, but it doesn't actually tell us, is that going to make a person better? And so it's, yeah, it's, it's much easier to criticize, of course, than it is to actually apply the same standard to yourself. And, 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 you know, to your point way back earlier, a huge part of the problem is that a lot of the criticisms are coming at this from so many different directions. Uh, like there are people who are saying uh, there used to be a true psychiatry science and we've sort of lost that. And then there's other people saying it was all it's all been a fake power play and they're on the same team going at it from both sides. And yeah, how do you even come to a solution um, from that? I'm not sure. But I, you know, it's so it's interesting because I've I've been thinking recently about writing an article about sort of the future of mental health and and where I see it going. And I see really two uh, routes that people across the broader mental health community spectrum whatever, are taking. And one is more of this community focus. So you focus on social determinants of health. You focus on bringing people together more, reestablishing social bonds and connections. And then another is like more like a biotech individualism, which I think we're also increasingly seeing with apps and wearables. Um, and to some degree, I think you could fit traditional psychiatry into that, although maybe that comes before, but yeah, you sort of have these two directions. Um, and I don't think we're going to have great evidence for either of those things. Any, you know, either or anyway, for a long time, because the, it, it always seems like the money goes first and the thing comes first, and the evidence comes later. So, I mean, how important do you feel evidence is, or actually has been in all of these discussions in the political, uh, and medical community? Do, do you feel like the evidence is driving many big decisions or do you feel like mostly it's used post hoc to justify what people uh, already want to do? Yeah, I, th- I think sort of like, you know, the, there's a, a bit of all of these things going on. And um, and I, I think sir, uh, I personally have uh, struggled with, with some of the, I think, ideas and attitudes around um, evidence-based medicine and, and sort of like, you know, evidence-based interventions in, in, in psychology. Um, because I think in, in certain circles, there's, there's almost this sort of um, fetishization of randomized controlled trial data and sort of like, you know, there's this kind of idea that, oh, you know, unless you can do an RCT, you know, then it doesn't really count. And sort of like, and then even in RCTs, unless you can perfectly blind it, and unless you can show a large or sort of like, you know, moderate effect size, then it doesn't really count. And I think sort of like the problem with, I think, medicine and psychiatry, psychology, sort of like, you know, human behavior is that, there's a lot of noise and sort of like, you know, there's like tremendous kind of variability and sort of like, you know, heterogeneity and uh, our sort of like our methods of measurement are really crude. Um, And it's just sort of like, you know, there's like so much uncertainty that I think um, that I think that ideal becomes kind of unrealistic in certain ways. And I think, and if we just focus on that, we miss out on all the other sources of information that we have, which which includes sort of like, you know, other forms of clinical trials, observational studies, clinical experience, uh, and also sort of like, you know, the experience of individuals with mental illness. Now, I think uh, all of these sources of information have different sort of like uh, different gradations of fallibility and error. So like, you know, so no form of evidence is perfect. They, they all have different kinds of limitations and different kinds of uh, biases and different kinds of fallibilities. And so I, I you know, uh, my own sort of like preference is to try to triangulate. Sort of like, you know, try to see, you know, like this is what 
clinical experience and patient experience seems to be telling us. This is what sort of like observational data seems to be telling us. This is what, for example, like basic neuroscience, wherever that is available, seems to be telling us. This is what RCT data is telling us. How do we sort of like, you know, fit it all together? Sort of like, you know, how do we sort of like, you know, um, uh, uh, sort of like, you know, make a more kind of coherent and complete picture um, uh, out of that? And I, I think sort of like, you know, in the current state, of psychiatric and psychological science, I think I think this sort of common sense approach is kind of important. You know, I, I think we we have to be humble about it. Sort of like you know, we have to recognize that you know that our our confidence, sort of like you know, in, in sort of like our state of knowledge is going to be low. That things are going to change. You know, new evidence, sort of like over time things. So so we can't be arrogant. We can't sort of like we can't present as oh, like, you know, this is what science says and you can't disagree with that. But so we have to treat that as sort of like, you know, tentative, preliminary, sort of like, you know, uh, incomplete scientific knowledge. But I don't think we should dismiss it. I, I don't think we should sort of like get to that point where we say that unless uh, we have this adequately powered, perfectly blinded RCT, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna dismiss everything else. And I, I think this is sort of like what some some psychiatric critics do is that sort of like, you know, they they raise the standards so high that they just sort of like, you know, dismiss everything and they say nothing works, you know, medications don't work, psychotherapy don't work. And and I I don't think that's true. I think sort of like, you know, we're doing, I think sort of like, you know, um, clinicians um, do have tools that are sort of like, you know, quite reasonably effective. Um, but um, I think we have these challenges that I think different different interventions work for different people, work to different degrees. And uh, I think we have to personalize sort of like, you know, care in a manner that we don't have good scientific guidance for. So so we we have to sort of like do it in a more kind of clinically intuitive and clinically sort of like commonsensical kind of way. There's a huge problem, I think, in um, how we talk about how everyone talks about degrees of confidence and degrees of effectiveness around science in general. Right. And most guilty of this more than anybody is the scientific press, like the people who uh, the journalists who are science journalists who you know, will read a press release and, or read an article and they'll write up about it. And of course you have public intellectuals and thought leaders and such who, you know, they, they, they like maybe try antidepressants and it changes their life. And now they're obviously that's, that should be an anecdote, but it becomes like a broader movement or a broader story. Um, and I think psychiatrists, obviously it's going to be on a personal level. I think from the experiences that I've had and people I've met, I think there are many who are very uncritical sort of believers. And basically if it's published in a top peer reviewed journal, then uh, and it's in it in the, in the abstract, it says like this medication works, then it works. And that's all they kind of care about, which is, you know, probably how, how many people make their decisions. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that uh, if you kind of talk to most psychiatrists, at, at least in 2023, maybe it wasn't the same 10 20 years ago, but they'll, if you sort of prod them, they'll say, well, it's more of an art than a science. And they'll say, right, like different things work for different people. We have to try a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of uh, room for tinkering and improvement. And we don't totally know how everything works, but uh, we know that we have a general sense. And I, you know, you're not wrong to say that clinical judgment like that, especially if it's then expressed over many, many years with many, many people all agreeing. Um, that that's that's not valueless right that that means a lot and there are many things in life that 
we don't have a randomized control trial for, but we still believe and we still do anyway. Part of the worry just comes from feeling like so many people are taking medications. So, you know, why don't we talk about antidepressants, right? So, so many people, uh, I, I saw one figure, which was one in eight. I've also seen one in 10 Americans uh, taking antidepressants. And when, when, when one talks to thoughtful psychiatrists such as yourself, the impression is not like, oh, we're 100% sure this is the greatest thing in the world. It's like this might make some, dis- you know, a difference for some people. There's a lot, you know, it's, it's very nitty gritty. And I think part of the, the concern uh, and, and maybe part of the reason for the disproportionate criticism towards psychiatry is just along the lines that these things have become so widely adopted. People are so cavalier about it now. And yet, when we get down to the nitty-gritty, it still seems quite... Not, an open question is maybe too strong, but it seems like there's quite a debate. There's certainly a debate. There's been this sort of, I think, consensus position in the field that um, that they work, they don't work quite as well as we would like, and they don't work for everyone. But sort of like there's this sort of like... The general idea is that they seem to work well for a subset of people and then for uh, for other people, they, they seem to work a little bit, sort of like, you know, and then there are others for whom they don't work at all, or they might even make things worse uh, for them. Um, so that's sort of like, you know, there's this kind of like, you know, broad kind of ac- ac- acknowledgement. And I think there's generally pretty good evidence to kind of support that kind of thinking that that we we have these different kinds of subgroups of sort of like you know people who who are uh, responding to antidepressants but um there is a there is sort of like there is still a kind of uh, persistent and ongoing scientific debates where sort of like you know people still kind of look sort of and analyze sort of like you know available clinical trial data in meta-analysis and systematic reviews. And I think it sort of like comes down to sort of like the the size of the average improvement over, over placebo. And I think there's sort of like there are people who think that uh, since the average improvement over placebo is is of a small magnitude, sort of like, you know, 0.3, uh, sort of like going to the effect size or two Hamilton depression rating scale points, then you know, that doesn't sound that much, sort of like, you know, antidepressants, you know, in generally for for the average patient are, are kind of, you know, worthless or are not not clinically kind of, um, you know, effective. But I, I think there are a lot of pro- a lot of problems with kind of that um, line of arguments. I think it, it's superficially appealing, but I think, one, I think it ignores sort of like, again, the heterogeneity of response that sort of like, you know, some uh, some people respond more, sort of like, you know, some people respond re- less and the average kind of values, you know, don't, don't capture that, that variability. Uh, I think sort of like another thing is that it, it misses sort of like, you know, our, the, the fallible nature of our, of our, of our measurement. And I think sort of like there, there's a, uh, there's a whole sort of like literature on the problems with Hamilton depression rating scale as an instrument and, you know, the ways it does and doesn't capture, you know, antidepressant effect. And I, I personally think Hamilton depression rating scale is a really poor choice of instrument if we are interested in, you know, sort of like looking at what um, antidepressants do. And people who have analyzed sort of like, you know, specific symptoms have shown that there's sort of like a much more uh, re- replicable and more robust effect on depressed mood by itself and not sort of like, you know, the aggregate rating scale score. And then I often, there's also sort of like, I think this conceptual issue of like, you know, what does comparison with placebo mean? You know, we know that compared to no treatment, antidepressants work really well. And sort of like, you know, but when we are comparing against placebo, sort of like, you know, we get into this challenge of, 
do we just look at that small difference from placebo or sort of like, you know, or how do we understand that sort of like, you know, like what are the mechanisms by which placebo sort of like, you know, produces benefit and how do those mechanisms kind of interact with sort of like, you know, with antidepressant mechanisms. Um, and if there are overlapping sort of like, you know, effects, then we can't just subtract the placebo effect from that antidepressant effect and say that it's only the difference that is due to medication and the rest is all due to placebo. You know, and that's not how sort of like placebo or the, or the medication kind of work. And plus giving placebo is not an option in the clinic anyway, where sort of like, you know, it's between either you prescribe this or you don't, you're not going to give a placebo to a patient. So, uh, you know, generalizing from placebo comparison to a clinic setting where the option is between no treatment versus treatment is also kind of, you know, uh, different. So I think, I think when you start considering these details, I think sort of like, you know, the, the common narrative kind of, you know, falls apart. But I think the, the bottom line is that, you know, these are not magic pills that don't work for everyone. You know, there's a, there's a subset of people who seem to do really well, but sort of like, you know, the others who don't sort of like, you know, probably don't really need them. And I think it also sort of like, I think, misses the fact that for many people, um, there are other interventions that can be really helpful, sort of like, you know, lifestyle change, exercise, dietary sort of like, you know, modifications um, for, again, not for everyone, for a, but for a subset of patients, those interventions might just be enough to get them out of that state of depression. Um, and there are others for whom instead of medication, psychotherapy would be sort of like a more suitable choice, you know, if there are psychological conflicts and sort of like, you know, links between uh, their, their circumstances and sort of like, you know, um, their internal temperaments and other things. So I, I think I completely agree that I think this strategy of relying on medication as the treatment for depression or anxiety is, I think it, it's sort of like, you know, it's wrong and I think it leads to over-treatment. You know, I think what we instead sort of like need to recognize is that we have a variety of different treatment options available and sort of like, you know, and all of them have kind of sort of like, you know, varying degrees of evidence supporting them. And, and what we need sort of like to figure out is not to sort of like, you know, pair these medical sort of like interventions against each other as if, you know, only this works and only this works, but instead try to figure out how to match the right treatment with the right person and how to figure out how to combine these interventions in, in a way that sort of like, you know, works best for the patient in front of us. And the, the sort of like, you know, the, the, the clinical trial landscape that we have had so far has not encouraged that because most clinical trials of medications are being conducted by pharmaceutical companies for uh, uh, FDA approval. And the FDA only cares about comparison with placebo. And um, uh, sort of like, you know, funding agencies such as National Institute of Mental Health, they have not been that interested in clinical trials. They have been more interested in sort of like, you know, other forms of research. So there's this sort of like big gap where, you know, we, we have these sort of like, you know, a lot of different kinds of interventions and we know how they do in isolation against placebo, but we don't know how to combine them or how to systematically use them or sort of like, you know, or how to attempt this sort of personalization of matching the treatment to the patient. And uh, and we sort of like, you know, we sorely need uh, that kind of research uh, to, to, to guide us. And so I, I think we need to, I think, acknowledge the problem that, yes, you know, we shouldn't rely just on medication and medications don't work on everyone. And I think sort of like, you know, this strategy of, just relying on medication as the first-line treatment is a really bad option, and we have to think much more broadly across many different types. Do we have any information about 
what factors might predict someone's success on an antidepressant versus another kind of like treatment like therapy? Um, sort of like, you know, so th- there are a study sort of like, you know, that have again, identified various sorts of associations, but uh, sort of like, you know, we haven't gotten to a point where we can use them in the clinical setting and reliably sort of like use them to say, all right, sort of like, you know, for this person in front of me, you know, this medication would work well or, or this intervention would work well. So we, we are not at that point yet, kind of, un- un- unfortunately. Well, it, it sounds like there's a big gap, like you're saying, and uh, maybe maybe there's a whole area of research which hasn't really been explored, which is sort of how to, in a uh, rigorous way, apply all these different treatments together, separate. It's something I've never actually considered. Always, it's been great talking to you. Uh, if people want to find more about you or read your work, where should they go? Uh, I think uh, at present, I think uh, my Substack newsletter is probably the um, sort of like, you know, the best sort of like source because I'm actively writing on that and publish pretty regularly. Um, um, I have done a lot of um, interviews and writing for Psychiatric Times as well, uh, in particular for the series Conversations in Critical Psychiatry. um, So people can look that up. And I also have a professional website where I link to different um, sort of like uh, videos that are available, lectures, et cetera. And then uh, other articles um, uh, that sort of like, you know, people can access um, for my academic writings. I think I have a Google Scholar page that, that people can, can, can look up and access articles through that. Okay, great. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Um, wonderful. Always. Well, thank you for coming on the Mental Disorder Podcast. Thank you for having me.